0: I have to read this headline to you. Okay. New York State man steals little Debbie snack truck. <gasps> Sweet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Poor little Debbie kidnapped in a van. <laughs> Poor little Debbie kidnapped in a van. They probably living in the van down by the river. Yeah, in a white yeah. kidnap van.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Zebra Cakes, oatmeal pies, moon oh, pies. Zebra moon Cakes. Pie. Oh, oh my
1: gosh. <laughs> I love zebra cakes. And just so you know, they don't actually use zebras in zebra cakes. They they use cake. No, they don't. They're just decorated like zebras.
0: The Salmyra man allegedly hijacked or stole a, <laughs> a, a Little Debbie
1: snack truck. <laughs> poor Little Debbie. Only in oh New, New York. York. We, need to, we need to put up a Facebook page for Poor Little Debbie and maybe a... Save Little Debbie account and uh, collect money for
0: ransom. It says that the Elmira, Elmira man allegedly took off in a Little Debbie's delivery truck Monday. The 38-year-old man reportedly stole the truck from a loading dock. Leeds it on Meyer police on a relatively short pursuit <laughs> were able to find the truck and 20 minutes later reported he never admitted to the theft and was arrested. His reason, according to police, the man wanted to use the truck to visit family and friends. Perhaps he couldn't find someone else to take him, like Uber wasn't available. <laughs> Apparently, none of the inventory was missing, so the man never had a snack while he was on his way to see his friends. Police say the man has been charged with criminal criminal possession of stolen property <laughs> in the third
1: degree of class D oh, felony. No. moon pies! <laughs> he had a truckload of moon pies. <laughs> truckload of moon pies. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Welcome to Disaster Tales. And today, we're going to talk about the largest earthquake ever to hit the continental U.S.
0: And that is... The New Madrid earthquake. It was more than one. There was a series of them. There were. But it's named for New Madrid, a town in, in southern Missouri, like on the boot heel of Missouri. And it's along the shore of the Mississippi River on that tip of Missouri, which... Interestingly enough, was not initially included in the state of Missouri, but because of a family who owned that large plot of land, they included it in the state of Missouri so that they could accommodate that family. That's right. And it's named for Léance à la Grasse in French, which is the Cove of Grease or the Cove of Fat. And it was so named because of the abundance of bear that they caught in the area. So there's was a lot of bear grease, a lot of bear fat. You know?
1: If you wanted bear grease for, like, candles or baking or for personal grooming because a lot of people use bear grease to put their hair down and keep it from getting all tangled. That's where you went was to New Madrid. I might have to go get my husband some. (laughs) (laughs) New Madrid is called New Madrid because it was originally under the Spanish and it was before the Louisiana Purchase and the Spanish explorers that came there and settled they named it after Madrid the capital of Spain and then it was taken over by the French when they started colonizing outside of New Orleans, and then it was purchased in the Louisiana Purchase. But imagine that you're living in Boston, Massachusetts, and on December 16th, at 2.15 in the morning, you're awakened by all the church bells in town ringing, and loudly, loudly enough to wake up everyone. And they didn't know what it was, because no one was out there actually ringing them. In New Madrid, we had a massive 8.1 earthquake. That happened at 2 o'clock in the morning, and it took 15 minutes for the uh, tremors to travel across the eastern United States and get to Boston. It was also felt in Philadelphia, in New York, and it woke up Dolly Madison and her husband, the president, James Madison, while they were asleep in the White House. This series of earthquakes includes the biggest earthquakes we've ever had in the United States.
0: It's interesting because the epicenter of the earthquake was in the St. Francis Swamp, which is adjacent to the Mississippi River across from New Madrid, actually in partially into the state of Kentucky. I found it interesting that the last few disasters that we've talked about, the San Francisco Fire and Earthquake, the St. Francis Dam collapse, and now this New Madrid, which originated in the St. Francis Swamp, leads me to believe that maybe St. Francis has something to do with disasters. Not sure.
1: (laughs) He's not the patron saint of animals. He's the patron saint of disasters. (laughs) The animals are just a side gig that he does in between disasters.
0: (laughs) But the area had never, up to that point, ever experienced an earthquake. It was the first earthquake that was recorded in any history that had been prior to that. So the fact that it was such a large-scale earthquake was pretty amazing. Yeah, it was. However, there were
1: legends from the Native Americans that said that they had had an earthquake like that before. And some people actually think that's why they built their mounds, so that they could stay out of the water. But I don't know if that's true or not. But yeah, that fault, it's a huge fault. And there's no question that it would have gone off at some point before. And it happened long enough to where the Native Americans had it in their oral histories. And
0: there was also talk of the fact that it was forecast or that it had something to do with the fact that in late September of that year, a double-tailed comet passed over the area. And so people thought that that was an indication or a harbinger that there was going to be some horrible, catastrophic event. And in late December, before the earthquake actually began, The weather in that area was said to have been like an Indian summer, that the temperatures had warmed up. But there was thick, heavy air and several thunderstorms prior to the event. And the Kentucky shoreline was invisible from the West Bank because of the amount of smoke and the fog being so heavy within the air. So it may have started with eruptions and explosions underneath that sent forth ash or a cloud of smoke into the air. And then it actually manifested completely at 2 a.m. on the December 16th event.
1: Now, was that immediately before the earthquake or was
0: that because the comet was in September? Right. And three days prior to the earthquake was when the weather had shifted. Okay. And they had the, the Indian summer and the smoke in the air and all the different things that, you know, were just unusual for that time of year in December.
1: Indian summer is of course when the air warms up and the weather is pleasant after we've had winter. So Indian summer is a warm spell that happens after you've already had snow on the ground.
0: Right. It's common, you know, but the fact was that the air was very thick, people said, and it was smoky and it seemed as though it was unusually oppressive. And then also it said that the week prior to the earthquake, like in that week before, they had a really strange or uncharacteristic migration of animals, like an, en masse. It wasn't just like squirrels, it was squirrels and it was fox and it was coyotes and, and all of these animals that wouldn't normally be in grouped, you know, grouped together or moving in a, in a pattern together. And they all en masse evacuated the area. And then it says that for centuries, the Chinese have observed animals migratory patterns to predict earthquake activity. And a similar phenomenon has been seen prior to tsunamis. So when there's that earthquake, the animals, especially the burrowing animals and ground animals, tend to be much more sensitive to the activity, and they start to move to higher ground or move to areas where there's not tremors going on.
1: Well, that happened in uh, the big Banda Aceh tsunami. When the earthquake happened that caused it all the animals started running for the hills before the people even knew there was anything coming. If they'd have followed the animals, then they would have been fine, but they didn't. So, But they did. Elephants, I think, they said, we're going up the hill. If you remember seeing Bambi, which is an authoritative documentary of wildlife. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it well. If, but if you remember seeing Bambi during the... <laughs> during the fire the, all the animals didn't matter if it was deer it was it was foxes it was squirrels and they weren't taking time to bother one another they were just heading out i think animals are more sensitive to precursor waves and other kinds of tremors that we don't notice especially with our boots and shoes and everything else.
0: Well, not only that, I think I think there's so much more going on, and we're really not in contact with the actual earth and ground. Like you said, shoes, floors, you know, electromagnetic things flying through the air. We don't have that sensitivity that maybe back, you know, in that time when there wasn't all that technology, there wasn't the vibration and stuff in the air. And maybe they, people might have been a little more sensitive to it, but...
1: Yeah. Well, just remember, if there's a disaster and you see Bambi, follow Bambi. (laughs) Follow Bambi.
0: Get off. Get off, Bambi. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, I've watched that movie too many times. That was Stephanie's favorite movie when she was little. My daughter sat in front of the television watching that her entire young life, so... Which kind of a sick story. I mean, you know, the the mother's killed and the father's yes yeah, fathers it's the absent father
1: <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't want to have anything to do with the child when it's growing up. Let the
0: mother do all the work. Yes, that's it's very hunter negative too. You know, the hunters were the ones who started the fire and they were wicked because they were killing bambies. Oh, they were camping. I don't think it was the purpose of it, it was the campfire got out of hand after they were done. They were Portrayed as being very irresponsible. Bambi is the the
1: seminal work on uh, you know wildlife behavior. So <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's right. And then Bambi said, "Bird." <laughs> I won a trivia contest one time by knowing that answer. I want a flashlight.
1: <laughs> what was Bambi's first word? Bird. How did you know that? (laughs) (laughs) Seen it 300 times. (laughs) Know it by heart. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So, so yeah, you're right. The animals were taken off, and then they didn't care who they were next to. It was just like when people, you know, they may have prejudices when when they're safe, but when they're not, they don't care who they go to. I'm here today with my friend Jerry Glover, who is one of our wonderful, amazing,
2: only sponsors. (laughs) It is my pleasure. Hi, Kay. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you? Great, thanks. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, let's talk about avoiding the disasters for our late spring and summer parties. So we have coming up graduations, Mm -hmm. we have Memorial Day events, and then we have a lot of family reunions taking place in the summer. And I would love to help people prevent some disasters at those events for their families. I think graduation parties often get crazy for the family because you're trying to deal with making sure that junior or missy has their cap and gown. They have the invitations out. They have family coming in from out of town. You've got grandma and grandpa you got to worry about. You have only a limited amount of tickets to the ceremony. So it works out really well if you can take the people that you would love to have at the ceremony that aren't able to go because of the limitation on tickets and host an event at the house so that they can wish your graduate well and get them off to College on a good start. That would be a good thing. And so you'd be willing to help them set that up. That's right. That's right. I can do everything from the shopping and prepping ahead of time and setting up, making sure that the venue, whether it's your house or a rented venue is decorated. If you're interested, I can even cook uh, and cater for parties up to about 75. I try not to do any more than that because it's a one-woman <laughs> show. It gets to be a little bit much. Yeah, that's a big party. Yeah, but we can we can manage. So how are they going to contact you if they want to do that here at Amarillo or the surrounding area? Right. I am really easy to reach by email, which is jerry, J-E-R-R-I, at Jerry G-L-O-V-E-R, dot com or they can reach me on my business line at 806-881-6810. And I can also receive text via that number. Excellent. Well, I know I was at one of your events over the weekend
1: and I was really impressed. It was very nice. We had a women's business gathering there and some
2: women that are in some unusual businesses were there yeah and i thought it was really interesting thank you thank you yeah we had a great time at that uh, event and the uh, people at arts in the sunset were very happy they've asked us back every month i think that (laughs) might be a big bit much for us but we certainly will be doing it at least one more time this year if not twice Mm -hmm. it was it was very well received and we were grateful for everyone that participated and came out to support Great. Okay. Well,
1: uh, thank you for, thank you for talking with me and thank you for
2: supporting our podcast. And we're coming up on our eighth episode, I think. Very nice. Super excited for you. (laughs) I I love it. I think it's great. Okay. Well, thanks again. And you have a good afternoon. You as well. Thanks, Kate.
1: Okay, so we had animals evacuating the area and it was December and it was relatively warm. They couldn't see across the Mississippi River to Kentucky, which they normally could. 2 a.m., December 16th, 1811, an initial earthquake occurred. I think the first one was a uh, 7.5, but it was immediately followed by an 8.1. And this is how this set of earthquakes went. It happened every single day from December 16th till February 7th. Every single day, they had tremors at different sizes, and a lot of them were up in the seven and up scale, which is a very high damage, a lot of earth movement. In this area, the earth, there's a huge fault that runs along the Mississippi, and it's an uplift fault. So a lot of the damages and the water issues were caused because part of the area lifted up and part of it sank. You had old lakes drain and new lakes form. The river was virtually unnavigable. It was very difficult to get through because if you remember reading any Twain, you know that people learned the river. They had to learn it and go down through, you know, here's an island, here's a sandbar, here's this and that. And if you're going to get a heavy draft ship through there, you needed to know where the deep channels were in the river. All of that changed. Yeah, it all changed during the earthquake and it changed between earthquakes.
0: Well, it said that the tremors created some fissures. The earthquakes were moving in a north to east, northeast direction, but the tremors caused fissures to open. They were opposite of the way that the earthquake itself was moving. It said that there was fog and a sulfur vapor that would erupt from the ground with sand and warm water, and the crevices would engulf trees or they would spit up trees out, you know, the bottom of the river. The topography changed drastically. It talked about how trees fell over these blowholes where the hot vapor was coming up through, and they would be burned or charred over the blowhole, and the rest of the tree would be intact. So there were places that it was molten and very hot, and other places where it was just like tepid. And it's interesting because you have like Hot Springs, Arkansas, just below this. It's all part of that structure underneath where you have the, the superheating of the water. They had
1: chimneys collapsed. Yeah, and those animals in December, they were already hibernating. So they wake up really cranky. So snakes were cranky. And the the bears were cranky, and uh, I'm sure that that was not fun. There was a traveling preacher. His name was Reverend Timothy Flint. He wrote a letter that explained what happened when he was there. One of the things he said was, the birds lost all power to fly and retreated to the bosoms of men. But apparently the birds, they couldn't stay in the trees because the trees were thrashing back and forth. And they, for some reason, they didn't want to stay in the air either. They wanted to get on the ground. And I'm not sure why they went to where the people were, but maybe it was a little calmer wherever they evacuated. I don't know. But that's what he said, that the birds, uh, they just quit flying and got on the ground.
0: Well, it's interesting because it talked about one family. They were all headed for the hills when the river started doing the stuff it was doing. It was swinging back and forth from shore to shore, and these huge waves. There were sinkholes created. Parts of the river were just swallowed. It created waterfalls for several places where the river dropped and um, the, the land fell into the river. That's what happened at New Madrid. But it talked about one family that went on this roadway that they knew it was a familiar roadway, eight miles. And during that time, it turned into a lake, like a tepid lake. And they said the temperatures were often like uncomfortably warm. But the water was like 18 to 40 inches, and they had to go through this lake in order to get to higher ground. And um, the animals and the snakes were with them. They were escaping, too. So they had to battle the hot water, the, the fact that the topography had changed drastically, and then also the animals that were trying to escape. And the thing is, there were relatively few fatalities on the land. Of course, the population density was not nearly what it is now in that area. If you had one now, it would be devastating. And the, the, we did, they did lose several chimneys. The chimneys collapsed. But one woman um, was running from the devastation, and she died of a heart attack. It just She was frightened to death. And then one woman refused to be evacuated from her cabin, and she was killed. A lot of their structures
1: were log homes, and log homes are the way that they're built, and with the fresher logs that they were using, are actually pretty flexible, and they could take a lot of the twisting and bouncing that was going on. Some of them did collapse, but they were uh, out of all the things you could build, like reinforced masonry buildings or concrete, which would have been totally destroyed in the size of an earthquake. The log houses weren't that badly damaged. Reverend Flint reported... That there was waves like the ocean, horizontal, but there were also what he called perpendicular motion, which is the earth actually moving up instead of sideways. And they alternated. So you'd have the carpet waves and then you'd have the upthrust, and you'd have more carpet waves as it adjusted and more upthrust. I can't imagine how scary it must have been. Even, because even if you know what it is when you have an earthquake, it's still an earthquake. But if you don't know what it is, that's the
0: coming of the end. There was a young man named Levon Curran. He and his family were in the process of moving to Port, Arkansas, which is now Little Rock, Arkansas. And his his parents sent him out to the St. Francis Swamp to round up their cattle because their cattle would forage in the swamp. But he never returned and they never found the cattle or him. So he was presumed to be a victim of the earthquake. So there was, as I said, relatively few. There was a lot more deaths on the river than there were on the shore from the accounts that I've read.
1: Once you got on the river, there was a lot of weird stuff. People were on those flatboats, and flatboats were good for carrying
0: large amounts of goods downstream. Right, because there was so much turbulence and so much debris and islands sinking
1: and sandbars, they were not good at navigating rapidly, and they never went back upstream. That says that the Mississippi was littered with the remains of abandoned flatboats, and people would go out and collect the wood and build a new flatboat and sell it to somebody who wanted to go downstream. The flatboats were tipped over very easily. They didn't have a deep keel. They they were just, what it says, flatboats. I have some river accounts here. Many said that the river was covered with a smoky soot that was still so thick it made the water opaque. And then it was said that the river was extremely agitated with rotting trees that had sunk to the bottom of the river coming out of the mud and popping straight up into the air. And if you happened to be, and then sitting there with its roots up and floating down the river, and if you happened to be on top of one of those trees when it came up, your flatboat was gone. They had massive waves that crashed against the shore and it caused the bank to collapse. And the water appeared to boil as it heaved alternately from shore to shore. The water disappeared into large sinkholes like you were talking about. Water spouts shot upward. Boat wreckage and lading or cargo was everywhere. Several boats were swept away or capsized. Some people managed to get to a little island or hook up to a log or something like that and try and keep their boat from going anywhere else. But it was still pretty dangerous. And there was a lot of people that got dumped out into the river and they didn't survive because they most of them didn't really know how to swim. That wasn't a, a skill that was highly
0: prized. They had an account of, of two um, trappers. It was a man and a friend's son who went across the river to go into the St. Francis Swamp to do trapping and hunting. And while they were there, the earthquakes began, and they watched as the lake that they had been fishing just completely disappeared. It just it emptied. It drained within a matter of just a a, a very short time, maybe a half hour. They had trees that were falling in, across crevices. They had to traverse that area trying to get back across to get to the river, um, to get back to New Madrid, which wasn't actually there when they got back, but they said that the land shook in waves. It looked like waves on the, on the sea, and that there were loud booming sounds, like a thunderous sound that was like continually sounding while the, the earthquake was happening. They, he said that the land looked like a carpet shaken out as it waved in peaks and troughs. So it's like you take a carpet and shake it, and it like a sine wave type shake. Right.
1: So there was a flatboat with a mother and a family of six children who were washed overboard. That happened near New Madrid. They uh, they perished from falling into the river. The Chickasha Bluff Island sunk, as did several other islands in the river. Two large waterfalls formed as the river dropped, creating a whirlpool that swallowed a large amount of water. So there was an upthrust that caused a waterfall, and then there was a hole at the bottom of the waterfall that all the water went into.
0: Right, and I think a lot of people felt that way. I guess New Madrid was not the nicest town, that they had a lot of vice there. And so some people felt like it was a judgment against the, the city. But the land changes that occurred, it was interesting to look at that. Along the Kentucky border, about four miles above Paducah, Kentucky, a large sinkhole about 100 feet in diameter swallowed up a heavy growth of timber and filled with water. It still remains until today. The appearance of the land was remarkably changed. A witness named LaSour described waves in the land two feet high that were moving from west to east. Visible depressions followed the uplifted soil. Water, sand, and sulfur-laden charcoal burst from the ground. The second quake was as violent as the first, and he, in French, said, which is save who can, and that was the cry of the families that left. And there were only two families that did not evacuate, but they had to leave all of their homes and possessions. The February 7th shock was the worst of all the quakes. The tremor was felt as far away as Boston, which we talked about. A man stranded on a nearby island. There were four men who got off it, disembarked out from a flatboat onto an island. Three of the men were able to get back off the island, but this man was was stranded there and He said he experienced the effects of frequent quakes, sand, coal, and lukewarm sulphur water erupting from the island. He reported frequent bright lights during the disturbance and they determined that that was the result of the land squeezing the quartz that was in the soil. And so it produced voltage, and it actually made bright flashes and lights from the quartz being crushed. He clung to a tree as a fissure opened up. The tree fell into the crevice, and he was injured. He had to walk quite a distance to find the sides of the crevice close enough to the surface to be able to escape. So he was hanging onto the tree. The tree fell into the crevice. It was so deep that he couldn't climb back up the wall. He had to walk for quite a distance before he could find land that was close enough to where he was to be able to climb out of the crevice. So, But he survived to be able to tell the story.
1: So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Witnesses says that 30 boats were swept over the falls because they didn't know they were there, and only two of them did not capsize. I don't know how high the falls would have been, probably not too awfully high. Crew members were heard crying out for help by the people on the shore, but no one was able to get out to help them because the water was just so turbulent that they couldn't launch a boat. 19 boats were moored at New Madrid docks. They were all lost. There was a great loss of life on the river as opposed to on the land where there wasn't very much. I have here, the report said that six Indian braves were drowned as they left New Madrid. They had been scouting
0: in the area, apparently, and they decided to leave when the first tremors occurred, and people tried to encourage them not to, but they went ahead and left, and they all perished. Did they leave on the river or by the land go through the woods? No, they left on the river. Okay. Crew members from various boats were swept away in the torrent. The river was reported to have run backwards between Islands 8 and 10. For the period of about two hours as it leveled, you know, it had to level as it adapted to the drastic changes that the earthquake caused. What was interesting to me was when it talked about the fact that the river was covered with soot, like a sooty substance that was like a powder, and so it was probably like a powdered charcoal or a powdered sulfur, and then, of course, it washed down river. You couldn't even see through it. It made the water opaque, so I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: The steamboat New Orleans, and we'll talk about the origins of that because it's kind of interesting, it arrived at New Madrid and Little Prairie, and it scared people because they'd never seen a steamboat before because they were brand new. It couldn't take on passengers because it couldn't get close enough to get people onto the ship, so it just proceeded slowly down the river, and they took note of what's going on. They waited at certain points for the river to have an adequate flow to navigate, so let's talk about
0: that steamboat. The people who saw it when, it when it came up to New Madrid and Little Prairie, which both those towns were washed into the river. There was a drop of like 12 to 14 feet in the riverbank, and those towns just dropped off into the river but the people thought it was part of the cataclysm. They had never seen it, and it was bellowing, you know, wood smoke was coming out of the hypes and stuff like that, and it made a sound as the paddle wheel moved, and they thought that this was part of the cataclysm, that it was the end of the world, and it frightened everyone. And so that's one of the reasons why people probably didn't get on board too, but the fact that they couldn't get close enough to more to be able to take on passengers was part of it. Right.
1: So back in eight. 1807, a man named Robert Livingston, who was a politician and a wealthy man and interested in science and new ideas, he and Nicholas Roosevelt, who was the great granduncle of Theodore Roosevelt, created a steamboat called the Palooka. Now, Roosevelt was a smith and he built steam engines. That's what he did. So they built the Palooka, and they tried that. Roosevelt suggested that they put a paddle wheel on it, but they decided not to, and when he tried to get a patent for the paddle wheel, they wouldn't let him have it. Now, Benjamin Henry Latrobe and Nicholas Roosevelt got together, and they built the Philadelphia Steam Waterworks. It was the steam-powered waterworks and heating, and it was the first of its kind in the entire New United States in the city of Philadelphia. So Livingston got with Robert Fulton and they talked about building a steamboat that they could run on the on the Hudson because Livingston could see forward to the fact that having steam powered locomotion on the water was the thing of the future. And so he was really hot to get that done. When he helped President Monroe navigate the Louisiana Purchase. He was rewarded by being given some land in the western area around the Mississippi River. So he was really hot to get a steamboat on the Mississippi. So Uh, he got Robert Fulton together with Nicholas Roosevelt, the builder of engines, and they went ahead and were building a steamboat that they eventually called the New Orleans, which was sky blue, which is something people also hadn't seen on a boat. But before they actually took the New Orleans to the Mississippi, Roosevelt and his new wife, Lydia Latrobe, who not by accident was the daughter of Benjamin and <laughs> Henry Latrobe, um, they had just gotten married about four months before. And when they went on a charting mission down the Mississippi. They went down the Ohio, and then they charted the Mississippi because they didn't have good charts. They did depth readings. They made maps of the islands. You know, they found the trenches that they could pass through and that took them good part of probably six to eight months then they they got on a ship and went back to new york went back to finishing up the steamboat and then they started to launch that onto the ohio river to get to the mississippi and by then uh, mrs roosevelt was pregnant so they were going down the ohio and they'd stop at these different towns And they'd show them how it would go upstream because that was the big deal about having a steam-powered boat was it was so difficult to go upstream unless you hired rowers. If you had a steam engine on it to run a paddle wheel or a screw, then you could go upstream as easily as you could go downstream. That was the big selling point for that. So anyways, they managed to get down the last waterfall in the Ohio, got on the Mississippi River, and that's about the time that the earthquake started. They realized that The things around them, the changes to the river were such that it took them a very long time to get down to the New Madrid area and even longer to get down to New Orleans and get out. So it's that group of people there, you know, Latrobe and Roosevelt and then Roosevelt and Livingston and then Livingston and Fulton, Fulton and Roosevelt and and Roosevelt marrying Latrobe's daughter. There was kind of a, I guess they were kind of a gang a steamboat gang.
0: Well, and the thing is, if you think about it, they, they were also highly discouraged by people in New Orleans about trying to navigate the Mississippi with a large boat because of the unpredictability of the sandbars and the, the water channels and things like that. People tried to really discourage them and say, oh, it's never going to work. You're never going to be able to do it. So it was kind of like a gauntlet thrown down. Okay, can we do this? And they really took it to task and they got it done. So I thought that was kind of interesting because there were people who, you know, poo-pooed the idea and said, no, you know, you're never going to be able to do it. And look at this. They've got all kinds of them. If
1: you read Mark Twain's Life on the Mississippi, it's basically about being a steamboat pilot up and down the river. And he talks about, you know, you have to, you have to know that where you can go, where the channels are, and you have to also, because you had to learn it. It was something that the steamboat pilots and captains, they actually had learned the Mississippi. And so as they went along, when changes were made, they'd document them and pass them around. And But, they, you know, any time that there was a flood or something like that, the Mississippi would change. Sandbars would slowly go downstream, things like that. So it was difficult, but it was not impossible, and they actually did it.
0: And, of course, they, as time went on, they dredged it. You know, they were able to dredge some of the channels so that it would be navigals too so
1: making it straighter yep putting up levees yeah yeah actually new madrid when i was looking at the map the original map right there where kentucky and tennessee and missouri meet there's a big oxbow i mean really like it was almost 360 degree oxbow and that's where new madrid was at the west end of that oxbow
0: and an oxbow obviously is where the river creates a channel shaped like a half circle or a C around a landmass. And eventually, as it flows long enough, it'll break through that and create what's called an oxbow lake, where that, that landmass will then be incorporated into the flow of the water body, and you'll have um, a depression there. But much of the Mississippi is, is that oxbow crescent shape. New Orleans is built on a crescent as well. That's why they call it Crescent City. Yeah, eventually it erodes the land to the point where the flow breaks through that little and creates an island in the center of it. Yeah. One of the things about that New Madrid because it was sitting right on that curve, and when the landmass on the riverside dropped twelve to fourteen feet, it dropped and created a different pattern for that part of the river. And Little Prairie also dropped into the into the water as well, and so. It changed the direction that the curve had at that point and created a new route, which obviously, you know, now you have a lot more land mass in the water. It's going to be harder to navigate because it's got more, you know, dirt in it and silt. And so it definitely changed things a lot when it happened. There was a young girl. She had um, broken her leg when their cabin collapsed, and her family left provisions for her and left her in bed and said, we have to leave because they were afraid that they were going to die. And people created shelters that were made of very lightweight wood and, and pieces of debris from the earthquake so that if it did collapse, it wouldn't kill them, but it did provide some shelter. But if you think about it, it was in December that that happened, and so the weather was still not I mean, not commodious to being outdoors and camping, but that's what a lot of people had to do was to be outside. But anyways, they had left her in the cabin. She was about 15 or 16 years old, I think, and just her some provisions and left. And there was a a military man who had come up through and I I didn't catch his name. I didn't write it down, but he was doing relief in that area, helping people and helping them rebuild and, and creating camps so that they could, you know, refugee to the camps. And he came to this cabin and found this young girl just there with a little bit of provision. And so he kept going back and nursing her back to health until she got to the place where she could actually walk again and then helped her to find her family. Desperate situations like that, you know, I mean, those that family probably thought, well, you know, She's not going to be able to travel. What are we going to do? You know, We can't carry her." And they probably had other children and other family members that they needed to get to safety. And so there's decisions that people make in those situations that can be really difficult. That's right. And people lost everything. Yeah, they did.
1: Those people ended up spending the rest of the winter in tents. One of the reports I read, it said the tents, like the Indians made, so teepees, but a tent isn't going to fall down and crush you in your sleep. And so as cold as it was, they abandoned whatever homes were still standing, and they lived in tents. Well, it's
0: interesting because the Native Americans in that area, there was a chief, a Shawnee warrior. His name was Tecumseh. He tried to organize several tribes to prevent westward expansion. He didn't want the white men to go past the Mississippi. And so he had tried to really rally the Indian tribes in that area to fight against the white people, the white settlers. Well, he kind of got betrayed. His sister married a Frenchman and moved to New Madrid. He was very angry with her, of course, and he went and kidnapped her and took her back to the Indian village. But she only stayed there a few weeks and then went back to her husband, eventually having a family of 12 children and staying in the New Madrid area. But she was there when the uh, earthquake happened. And uh, But there had been a prophecy among the Indian people that there was going to be a disaster like that. And it was, you know, primarily just, you know... Folklore that was handed down, but um, they were correct because it actually happened. (laughs) Well, and
1: that probably had its roots in a previous earthquake before Columbus came to the New World because, like I said, that was still in their oral histories as well. So they were probably, that was probably related the fact that there had been one and then there would probably be another one. Right. I read an interesting novel one time called The Rift by Walter John Williams, and it's about a New Madrid earthquake of the same size hitting in the 1990s. And I thought it was very interesting. All the response, emergency response, things that I saw in there were pretty accurate. He knew what he was talking about. And um, it talks about all the things that could happen now on the Mississippi if it rifted, if that's one of the theories is that the New Madrid earthquake in 1811 was from a rifting of North America that it shifted this huge fault line. And they talk about, among other things, what would happen along the sides of the river now. Because now there's not just mud along the sides of the river, now there's chemical plants and there's oil refineries. I think there's a nuclear power plant. Mm. Along the river, which is not real smart.
0: Well, I know New Orleans has a lot of industry along the river because they can ship easily from there. They had a smelting plant, the aluminum smelting plant, Kaiser Aluminum. They had the nickel plant down there, different things that were along the river. Of course, a lot of oil refineries a lot of processing for, you know, petroleum products and stuff. That's all the way up the river. And the population is right up against the river, too. You know, there's a lot of housing and people's homes and stuff are along the river. And so, and those levees, I mean, we we saw with Katrina, those levees don't always stick. And if you had a large tremor or an earthquake or a rift, then those would collapse. And then the water would just inundate the whole area. Okay, there's a...
1: Riverbend Nuclear Generating Station It's in Louisiana, near St. Francisville and West Feliciana Parish, north of Baton Rouge. St. Francis again. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, if you have an 8.1 shake, it's going to take down everything. And so in this novel, he wrote that it had affected the nuclear power plant. And so they were working on trying to get that shut down before it went into meltdown.
0: There was a, a, a section in the, one of the books that I was reading about the history of the New Madrid, and one of the things that it talked about was the fact that back in the 60s and 70s, they had a lot of earthquake preparedness. They had a geologic place that, you know, geologic observation societies, it was a big huge, you know, industry type thing where they had offices, and they had people who'd go out and inspect and do different things. And as time went on, because they hadn't had an event in so long, it got smaller and smaller, and now it's down to the size of a place that's only staffed, you know, one afternoon a week in a little tiny house. But the, the thing is, they had kept up with codes, with building, you know, specifications and things like that in that New Madrid area, and um, it eventually has just kind of fallen by the wayside. So it leads me to think that if it were to happen, there wouldn't, be as much preparedness because they've kind of fallen asleep on it because it hasn't happened. And the population density is so great in that area. From an emergency
1: management standpoint, folks that plan for that nationally are very aware of the New Madrid fault zone and the fact that it could go again. If you have an earthquake that goes all the way to Boston from the Mississippi River, it's an earthquake that not a lot of things are going to survive. As they built up after the early 1800s, they started building brick buildings and concrete stone buildings and things like that, but they weren't reinforced. They didn't have rebar back then. And so there's a lot of unreinforced masonry buildings. And because they don't give, like a log cabin would give, if it gets a big shake, if there's a big quake, they're going to collapse. They're going to crack along all their seams and then it's just going to fall in. Even a smaller earthquake can cause a lot of damage and death, like it did in San Francisco in 1906. The codes that they built in that area, that they passed in that area, their laws, were that they have to build the reinforced masonry. They have to, you know, build things that are less likely to be damaged in an earthquake. Even though the local monitoring may not be what it used to be, folks are very aware that it's something that they have to watch.
0: Well, it's interesting, too, because if you look at that fault line, And where it runs, it runs through Ohio into western New York across the Buffalo area and up through Weedsport, New York, which is about i don't know half hour from where we are mm-hmm. and then up into the plain just at the base of the adirondacks and we've had a couple of minor tremors in that weedsport area like a 1.4 or a 2 in that area over the last 30 years mm-hmm. and so if it goes it would go right across the top of ohio you know and illinois would probably be affected chicago area all of those large population areas that are in between you know where it starts and where it finishes so it could really create havoc.
1: Yeah. Well, depending on where the where the slip occurs, you know, the closer you are to the focal point, the more damage you're going to have.
0: So my thought is don't live anywhere that has Francis in the name of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing about these earthquakes is they didn't just
1: have an earthquake on December 16th. They had multiple earthquakes on December 16th. They had them on the 17th. They had them on the 18th. They had them every single day until February 7th, which is a massive amount of earth movement. That means that the first couple of quakes made so much movement that the rest of the earth around it had to catch up and kept slipping and cracking so that they would have earthquakes constantly. They had 2,000 or more earthquakes between December 16th and February 7th. And I haven't divided that out into two and a half weeks, but I can imagine that's a bunch per day. That's an official count—a bunch per day. Yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> we know it's that. Okay, so two thousand. She's doing the math. Oh my God! Don't 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 trust me on this one because I'm not very good with math. So that's thirty-seven point seven earthquakes per day. That's a lot. That's a lot of earthquakes. And those people must have been just like shell shocked you know, wondering if this was going to be another one of those big ones that's going to take everything in the area down or if they're going to have something pop up from the ground underneath them or they're going to open up a crevice underneath them and they're going to fall into it. There must have been a lot of PTSD after that happened. People probably were pretty freaked out.
1: And they were interspersed with pretty big earthquakes. They'd have... The initial earthquake was 7.5. The second one was 7.8, I think it was. And then they had small ones and large ones and small ones and large ones at the rate of about 38 per day until February 7th when they had their biggest one occurred, on, and that was an 8.1. And on the Richter scale, 8.1 is is, a, is near total damage.
0: Yeah, well, if the population density was like it is now in that area, there would be mass deaths. Oh, Yeah.
1: We had a 9.2 in Anchorage, Alaska, on in in 1964, and that one, you if you've ever seen the films of that, you can see the road uplifting 15 to 20 feet. Wow! Because somebody was out there with the camera.
0: <laughs> probably my husband. Oh no, my husband wasn't living there then.
1: Well, if he was in Alaska, he probably would have been doing it.
0: He probably would have been out there.
1: <laughs> so 9.2 was the Alaska earthquake. 8.8 was also Alaska. Most of them are actually in Alaska, Alaska, Alaska. They
0: recently had a pretty big one there, too.
1: New Madrid comes in at number nine. February 7th, 1812 was a 7.9 according to this. According to the other thing I read was a 8.1. That is the ninth biggest earthquake and the only one outside of Alaska to have happened. Yeah. To be in the top ten. Last one before that was uh, number ten is January 9th, 1857 in Fort Tejon, California. New Madrid, where nobody thinks about earthquakes, is number two
0: after Alaska. Right, right. So that's, you know, something to think about as far as preparedness goes. You know, you don't... As I said, people don't think about it. They just had a 2.8 in New Madrid, not even less than a month ago. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're fracking in that area, or maybe it's just the beginning of rumblings for that area. Who knows?
1: Yeah, they have small earthquakes every once in a while. One of the things that happened in the big flood in 94 that went down the Mississippi was coffins washed away from cemeteries, and they had propane tanks wash away down the river. Right. Neither one of those things are what you want to find out in the river. But also, all of these chemicals and and whatever waste, nuclear waste, human waste, sewage, dead bodies, everything, goes out into the Gulf. And if we had another earthquake like that now, it would kill the Gulf of Mexico. There would be nothing living
0: in the Gulf of Mexico. Right. Because there would be so much pollution. And it would affect everything downriver from it. I mean, if you think about it, everything that's... You know, Memphis, and it would it would hit New Orleans and different cities all the way down the river. It would affect all of them. Yep,
1: and each community would be adding more to the debris. Right. You
0: know, it's one of those things that you hope it never happens, but if it does, there needs to be some preparedness and some, you know, forward thinking about how to prevent things from destroying the environment when it does happen.
1: Right, and, uh, well, we just had that big fire down here in Texas where they had to evacuate huge areas of Houston and the surrounding area because there was benzene leaking out of this fire. They had people sheltering in place because they didn't want to go outside. And that means you shelter in place, you turn off your air conditioner and heating, you put tape around all the cracks in the doors and windows, you don't go outside, and you just kind of sit there and... Suffocate. (laughs) Wait until it's gone. But benzene is a carcinogen. It's a well-known, very active carcinogen and... People don't people don't need to be coming in contact with it. Mm-hmm. But then after they did the all clear, the place started burning again. So I don't know if they've had another shelter in place or not since then, but that was last week. And, wow. And if you can imagine an earthquake shaking all these things up and causing fires, then what are you going to have? You're going to have massive wildfires. All right, things released into the atmosphere that affect it for years to come. Yep, it's time for us to stop worrying about what we're going to have to do to make our planet cleaner and just do it. Because old folks like us, we're not going to have to live through the consequences of what we're doing. But our grandchildren are, and their grandchildren are, if they get that far. And we owe it to them to leave them the best possible earth we can leave them because we messed it up. But it's going to happen eventually, so you need to get ready.
0: And it's one of those things you really can't do anything about as far as it occurring, but you can be prepared if something were to happen to care for your family and care for your your possessions, you know?
1: Oh, yeah. I met a guy at the last place that I worked, and he was one of the disaster survivors. And he says, yeah, that's a wildfire. I've been in one of those before. And when I was in Hawaii, I was in a tsunami. And when I was in Florida, I was in a hurricane. And when I was in Louisiana, I was in a hurricane. And I thought, I did not want to live next door to you, dude. Was his name Francis by any chance? (laughs) It probably was. Francis St. Francis. (laughs) (laughs) Or Frank for short.
0: (laughs) Just a disclaimer, we're not banging on St. Francis, but it's just interesting to me that all of these disasters have
1: that common thread. It's synchronicity, yes. St. Francis is pretty popular as saints go, I guess, so. (laughs) I don't know that they de-sainted him like they did St. Christopher, but... (laughs) but he's out there. Patron Saint of Disasters. Patron Saint of Disasters. All righty. Well, is there anything else we need to talk about? Uh, I don't think so. Um, Thank you for chatting with me about this. It's been interesting. We need to figure out what we're going to do next. I know. There's lots and lots of information online. Eyewitness accounts of the uh, New Madrid earthquake. It's called the New Madrid Compendium of Eyewitness Accounts. And I will put this link on our website.
0: That University of Missouri site has several personal accounts. That's where I got a lot of the... It's the University of Memphis. Oh, University of Memphis. I'm sorry. I knew it would begin with an M. That's okay. Interesting study, interesting information, and uh, I look forward to the next time we get to record uh, a disaster.
1: Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. If you have a disaster tale you'd like to share, you can send it to us at kate at disaster Today's disaster tip comes from the New Madrid and many other earthquakes. If you're indoors during an earthquake, drop to the ground Take cover by getting under a sturdy table or other piece of furniture and hold on until the shaking stops. If there isn't a table or desk near you, cover your face and head with your arms and crouch inside a corner of the building. Stay away from glass, windows, outside doors and walls, and anything that could fall, such as lighting, fixtures, or furniture. Stay in bed if you're there when the earthquake strikes. Hold on and protect your head with a pillow unless you're under a heavy light fixture that could fall. In that case, move to the nearest safe place. Do not use a doorway except if you know that it's strongly supported, low-to-bearing doorway and is close to you. Many inside doorways are lightly constructed and do not offer protection. Stay inside until the shaking stops and it's safe to go outside. Do not exit a building during the shaking. Research has shown that most injuries occur when people inside buildings attempt to move to a different location inside the building or try to leave. Do not use elevators and be aware that the electricity may go out or a sprinkler system or fire alarms may turn on.